Turn to Philippians chapter 2 if you would be so kind. We are very, very grateful to God that He has lavished loving blessings upon each and every one of you. And you have very kindly shared with us. We know that Clay and Sandra are the epitome of host and hostess. And we're about to find that out in just a little while in a continuing manner. But we're very, very thankful for each and every one that you have so lavishly loved us even for this day or two that we've been here. Obviously, the most important thing we can talk about is, as we have sung, the love of God as personified in his one and only giving of his perfect son, the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Philippians chapter 2 certainly brings that into sharp focus. And so we're going to read this familiar place. But let me talk for just a moment about the sermon selection for this very special Lord's Day. You don't get this waistline or this hairline without considerable experience. And a preacher will, give or take, prepare and present about 100 lessons a year. Multiplied by 32 years that I've been doing it, we have approximately 3,200 sermons. Now, how would you pick one out of that extensive list? And you're going to find out that this is really and truly, if you had one sermon and one sermon only that you could share with anyone and everyone for all time, this would be it. Philippians chapter 2. And you'll notice that this particular reading as we begin in verse number 5, he says, Have this attitude of mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if you actually back up to Philippians 1.27, he talks about a person who's devoted to the Lord has a very concerted desire to be sacrificial, to do what is best for the good and welfare of the other person. And that's the context, my beloved brothers and my sanctified sisters, in which we find Paul addressing this subject. When we talk about the idea of the Lord being sacrificed for us, I hope that it never becomes so familiar that we view it with contempt. I hope that every song that we sing and every verse that we read reminds us about that hill of Calvary and what was accomplished there in a monumental way for the sin of the world. And I talked about having five Bibles here. And Philippians chapter 2, I usually read out of the King James, but oftentimes it's helpful in my mind to compare and contrast. And so if you have whatever translation you're looking at, we'll read together beginning at verse number 5. Have this attitude and purpose in your hearts, in your minds, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let him be your example in humility and in everything, who being essentially one with God and in the form of God, equality essentially with God, possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God. Do not think this equality with God was a thing to be eagerly grasped or retained. But he stripped himself, that is to say, he made himself of no reputation. He made himself nothing 
not clinging to his prerogatives as God's equal, but he emptied himself of the privileges and rightful dignity so as to assume the guise of a servant in that he became like men. One translation says that he <clears throat> was found in human likeness. And after that he appeared as a human being, he abased and humbled himself still further and carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because he stooped so low, I'm thinking of a compound Latin word, which is the word condescension, and literally it means to climb down. Because Jesus was willing to lower himself to the extreme for us, God has also highly exalted him. He has given him an elevation to the very highest place and bestowed freely upon him the name that is above every other name. That in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and must bow and every in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall frankly and openly confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> we just sang a song that talked about the fallen man and woman. We recognize that Jesus Christ himself is fully God and fully man. He is not fallen humanity, but he is full humanity. And when we look at it from that standpoint, it's what we call a very mysterious... I heard people describe the triune Godhead this way. The Father is God without skin. The Son is God in His skin. And the Holy Spirit is God residing in our skin. The indwelling of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A long time ago, people described this combination of God and man in the person of Jesus Christ this way. He is as much man as if he were not God, and he is as much God as if he were not man. He's not 50% man and 50% God. He is absolute man and absolute God. I was thinking about the song that we sang about the Lord's Supper, and it says, learning all the might that lies in a full self-sacrifice, and learning all the worth of pain. And you might say, well, I've had enough pain, thank you. I don't wish to have any more. And really and truly, the song is illustrative of the pain that essentially comes into each and every life. I heard it expressed this way. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says three things about suffering. And of course, in the entirety of that epistle, he says a great deal about suffering. It was a dangerous proposition to be a Christian in the first century. I mean, literally, if you confess openly and publicly that you have faith in Jesus as the Son of God, you were literally laying your life on the line. 
And Peter says it over and over and over again in anticipation of, remember we talked in our class about Peter affirming that he would go to prison and to death for the Lord just immediately prior to denying three times. I don't know him. I wasn't with him. I'm not his disciple. You know something? Not only was Peter denying the Lord, he was lying. He had to tell a lie. As a matter of fact, I looked at the composite of all the accounts of Peter denying the Lord in the Gospels three times. But really and truly, in the presentation of people coming up to Peter and said, You are one of them. You were with him. I saw you in the garden. And every, six times Peter lied. He said, No, I don't know him. I wasn't with him in the garden. Everything that he was saying in order to try to save his own neck, he was lying against his Lord. And then after Jesus prayed that, you know, Satan was wanting to permission to sift him like wheat. And Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. After you have returned, strengthen your brethren. And so some people would say, well, Jesus didn't get the answer to his prayer. That his faith wouldn't fail because Satan, in fact, did manipulate Peter. I was looking at the, 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 the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And at least three times it says, Satan entered into Judas so that he could go and arrange for Jesus' arrest. Betraying him with a kiss, of course. But the Bible also says that Satan entered into Peter. To cause him to lie against his Lord and deny his Lord. And so, on the one hand, Jesus didn't get the answer to his prayer. But on the other hand, he did because Peter did return and he did strengthen his brethren. We talked about him being unique because he was an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Peter was all those combined into his personality. And of course, then when he writes the second epistle, he said, The Lord showed me the kind of death by which I would glorify him. And so Peter was going to glorify Jesus in his life and death, but he certainly had a little bump in the road over there in preparation for Calvary. The reason I bring that up is because Peter said three times in 1 Peter 4, you share in the sufferings of Christ. You suffer according to the will of God, and you suffer as a Christian. Just that alone tells us that suffering, uh, being a Christian would be a proposition of suffering. And if a person says, well, I think I'd rather be addicted to comfort. <laughs> I would rather emphasize comfort in my life in the absence of pain. We may miss the will of the Lord if we refuse to suffer for him. Jesus left the most comfortable place in all the universe to voluntarily be nailed to the most uncomfortable place in the universe. Furthermore, Jesus goes to Calvary willingly, obediently, and savingly. Jesus at the cross satisfies the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. And when we talk about why of all the lessons that we could prepare and present, we would present this one. Because this is a universal lesson 
that involves every person, we're probably talking between 30 and 40 billion people now who have ever lived on earth or whoever will live on earth or who are living on earth now. And as a result of that, you know, Jesus told us, don't call people foolish or empty-headed or good for nothing. That's not your prerogative. But God, you know, several times in the Psalms, for instance, Psalm 14, 1 and 53, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And God says, well, you know, they're going to have that attitude up to a certain point. And then what's going to happen? They're not going to just begrudgingly acknowledge, okay, I said God didn't exist, but I was wrong. God exists. This is not like that, beloved. This is an absolute acknowledgement and exclamation and proclamation and a profession and a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee that has ever bent and every mouth that has ever spoken a word is finally and fully going to announce, not just, okay, I guess I'll have to admit that God exists. All the knees will be bowed. And all the tongues will be confessing. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what everybody is going to explain sooner or later. Everybody comes to the Lord, some sooner, some later. But what I'm thinking about is how stubborn and selfish can we be? I'm going to do it my way as long as I possibly can before I finally have to bow my knees and confess before the Lord. How obstinate and how procrastinating and how rebellious and negligent and disobedient and ungodly people can be. And I'm grateful that we have an audience such as this and we make this profession and we make this confession every day. I don't hesitate to say it to anybody. Yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And I'm wondering about if you ever thought about this as thoroughly possibly as we could. Now, in Isaiah chapter 45, where Paul got this idea about Jesus Christ being the Lord and every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, well, the Holy Spirit gave it to him, obviously. You know, 800 years before the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this to the Philippians, he inspired Isaiah to say the exact same thing. And literally, I'm serious about this. I'm giving you the abbreviated version of it. In Isaiah chapter 45, there are some monumental messianic milestones that are placing God in such a supreme position that he is the one and only. There is no one to be compared with him. The language is being very exceptional and very exclusive. That God is unique among every other idol or every other God that could possibly be worshipped. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul said, Well, there's many lords and many gods for many people, but for us, there's one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And the reason I bring that up is because Isaiah puts Yahweh, or Jehovah, the Lord God Almighty, in such an extreme category that nobody can possibly approach him. And then the other inspired writers, including Isaiah, 
they say the exact same exclusive language, exemplary language about Jesus, tying him together, which is what Paul said here. Jesus is equal with God. In fact, I want to go to two comparative passages. Brother Harkrider was talking about Ephesians and Colossians and how they have so much in common. Ephesians chapter 1, the difference is, in Ephesians, Paul is emphasizing the church of the Christ. And in Colossians, Paul is emphasizing the Christ of the church. Either way, Christ is exalted. And here in Ephesians chapter 1, let's begin reading in verse number 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, not only is this parallel, Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1, but look what we were reading there in Philippians 2. Every knee will bow. The ones in heaven, the angelic knees, the ones on earth, the human knees, and the ones under the earth. The, the devilish knees, the demonic knees. Every knee that has ever been created will bow before the Lord. And so he says here, in him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. When we talk about the fulfillment, the summing up, the totality of God's eternal plan, he said, I sum it up in one person, in Christ. All the summation of God's eternal plan is summed up in Christ. Now, when you get there to Colossians 1, we will begin there in verse number 15. Colossians 1 and 15. <clears throat> Now, Jesus is the exact likeness, the visible, visible manifestation or representation of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For it was in him that all things were created in heaven and on earth. Notice again the realms that we're talking about. In all three places, the commonality is everything that has ever been created in heaven and on earth. Jesus is, whether he, we're talking here about things unseen, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created and exist through him and in him and by him and for him. And he himself existed before all things, and in him are all things consisting and being held together. He is the head of his body, the church. Now notice, when we talk about God's eternal plan, and it's all completely and totally summed up in Christ, notice how the church figures so prominently in God's plan. Because no sooner does he exalt Jesus to the ultimate highest position of headship, but he said, oh, what, the ones that he is head over are his church, his body. And so it says that there in verse number 18. He's the head of his body, the church, seeing that he's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he alone in everything and in every respect might occupy the chief place 
He might stand first. He might have what I call the preeminent supremacy. He's the greatest person who ever lived and ever will live. And it pleased the Father that all the divine fullness, the sum total of divine perfection, remember the version I was looking at in Philippians 2, it said, Jesus is the fullness of everything that makes God God. And if you missed it there, and if you missed it here, remember Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. If he said, this is what we call a superlative statement. If we would say Jesus has all the Godhead residing in him, or if we would say Jesus has the fullness of the Godhead residing in him, not only would that be accurate statements, but it wouldn't carry it far enough. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And so we'll read one more verse here. And God purposed that through, by the service and intervention of him, the Son, all things will be completely reconciled back to himself, again, whether we're talking about on earth or in heaven, as through him the Father made peace by means of the blood of his cross. So, Jesus is being crowned as Lord of all. Jesus is the name above all names. He owns it all. He controls it all. He commands it all. He determines it all. As preachers are fond of saying, the throne of our lives does not have two sitting positions. It's one person throne. And so we climb down and we exalt and elevate the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of our lives. Now let's say that you like... Jacob, in Genesis chapter 49, he's literally on his deathbed, and he gathers everybody together, all of his sons, so he can pronounce future blessings individually on each one. If you're on your deathbed, and you gather together everybody that you ever loved, everybody that was near and dear to you, and they're about to survive you, and you finally summoned up your last breath, and you only could say four words, your four last words, could you do better than... Jesus Christ is Lord. Leave that last impression with everybody who will live on after you. Let's say that you had all the public address systems, all the speakers in the whole world connected, and your budget was $4 billion. And they said, you know something? Everybody in the world is going to hear what you have to say, and your $4 billion budget will get you four words. Could you do better than Jesus Christ is Lord? For your four billion dollars? Could you say anything that has more significant meaning than what Paul says here, which everybody's going to eventually say? When we think about those four words, Jesus Christ is Lord, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. You know who named them? It wasn't Sarah or Hagar or Abraham, it was God. He told them, you name your sons Ishmael and then Isaac. And King Josiah and King Solomon and John the Baptist. Remember when the angel Gabriel goes to Zacharias as he is performing the priestly duty and said, don't be afraid. I, I, I was fascinated by this. When the angel goes to Mary, you know what he, the first thing he says to her? Don't be afraid. 
when he goes to, to Zacharias, you know what he said? Don't be afraid. So what do you think he said when he appeared to Joseph in a dream in Matthew 1? Don't be afraid. Every time the angel comes, it, it's just a startling experience. And so the angel says to Zacharias, don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. God is going to bless you and Elizabeth with a little baby boy, and you should call him John. And even the people, when John was born, they said, you don't have any relatives named John. Well, it wasn't their call. God said, name him John. And you know who chose the name Jesus? The angel says to Joseph, don't be afraid. Mary is carrying a child by the Holy Spirit, and it's a little baby boy child, and when he's born, call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Behold, the Lord will give you a sign. A virgin shall be with child, and she will give birth to a baby boy, and you should call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so sure enough, when the time to be delivered, a little baby boy is born, and Mary and Joseph call him Jesus. What about that name, Jesus? The explanation is this, because he'll save his people from their sins. You know what the word Jesus means? In the Hebrew, it's Yeshua, or in our language, Joshua. Still a common name to this day. Joshua. What does it mean? It means Yahweh is the Savior. Oh, I thought Jesus was the Savior. <laughs> Notice how his, the meaning of his name equates him with his eternal heavenly Father. Call him Jesus because he will save his people. In other words, those people who belong to him. They are his purchased possession according to <clears throat> Acts 20. You just studied that. I hope we didn't skip over it. What Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And Brother Hartwrighter correctly pointed out, this says two things. Number one, Jesus is God. It says he, God purchased the church with his blood. And secondly, that if you want to be the beneficiary of the blood of Christ, you have to be in, that, where's, where's our blood? It's in our body. And we hope it stays there, right? It's our coursing through our blood vessels, our life-sustaining fluid. Where is the blood of Jesus? In his body. We just read it there in Colossians 1. He's the head of the church. And, of course, in Ephesians 5, he's the savior of the body. And so if we want to benefit by the shedding of his blood, which is the cleansing agent for the sin of the world, we have to be in his body. And so we belong to him because he purchased us with his blood. So, when we talk about this idea of Jesus Christ is Lord, the Hebrews say it this way. They say Yeshua HaMashiach, which means Jesus the Messiah. The Greeks say Isus Nechristos, Jesus the Christ. And I'll tell you why this is significant. Because not only does Paul say here in Philippians chapter 2, but in Acts 2, this time it was Peter and the other apostles. Paul, it wasn't anything like a Christian at this point, what Peter calls the beginning, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them at the beginning. And what Peter says there is, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So the point to me is this. There were other people named Jesus, there are people today, 
have a little baby boy, you name him Joshua. People still do it. We're not just talking about any Joshua. You know how Stephen in Acts 7 or the Hebrew writer in chapter 4 used the word Jesus and Joshua interchangeably. And so Peter said, I'm not just talking about some Jesus, I'm talking about this Jesus. And you know something? Even though Peter reversed the word order, he said the exact same thing that Paul said. He didn't just make him simply the Lord, and he didn't just make him only the Christ. He made him both Lord and Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Remember when Peter made that confession in Matthew 16? People said, well, who do, Jesus said, who do people say I am? And different people say different things. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ is the Lord. In John's Gospel, 21 times, Jesus is referred to as the Christ. And there's a real interesting place to me in John chapter 7 where Jesus was going to the Feast of the Tabernacles, but he deliberately hung back for a while, and his brother said, aren't you going to go to the feast? We're going. And they went ahead, and then Jesus came, and he's teaching there in the middle of the temple, and people are saying, can you imagine one person being so polarizing to divide opinions of the whole human race? Some people said, he's a good man. And other people said, he is a deceiver. He is misleading the people. How can so many different people look at one individual and have such completely opposite viewpoints? You know something? Jesus did that everywhere he went. People would say, he is the son of God. And other people would say, how soon can we eliminate him? How can our hatred be poured out furiously against him? And then the people looked at Jesus and they said, had the rulers concluded that this is the very Christ? And then some people argued. They said, well, let's look at the evidence. When the Christ comes, will he do more miracles than this man has done? They said, how can you deny it? Everywhere he goes, he heals incurable diseases. He raises dead people back to life. He has to be the Christ. Who could have more authority and more power than this man has? And when we talk about Jesus Christ is Lord, notice how this has perpetual relevance. When Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago, was Jesus Christ the Lord then when Paul wrote it? Is Jesus still the Lord today? We don't say Jesus Christ was the Lord. It's as meaningful to us, and hopefully we take these words from God's Word and we make them just as living and as transformational that we can make in our lives and other people's lives. He, he, he is the Lord. He always was, He always would be. As a matter of fact, remember that in the burning bush scenario in Exodus 3 where Moses sees it and he says to the Lord, Who should I say sent me to Pharaoh? And he says, Tell him I am that I am sent you. There's 11 major times in John's Gospel where Jesus says, I am. And the religious authorities instead of saying, wait, wait a minute now. What you're doing is claiming a connection with the Lord God Almighty that goes all the way back to Moses and the burning bush. 
examine the scriptural evidence. Let's look at the person of Jesus, the lesson that he taught, the deeds that he did, and let's see if we can come to an agreement. Jesus is equated with Yahweh, the eternal God of the Old Testament. In, in, in Psalm 90, in similar places, it says, this is, this is what we know about God. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Always was, always will be. And what did the Hebrew writers say in chapter 13 and verse 8 about Jesus? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And if he doesn't come for another 2,000 years, you know something? People that read the Bible in 2,000 years from now, you know what they'll be saying? Jesus Christ is Lord. He always will be. What does that mean, Jesus Christ being the Lord? Well, Acts chapter 9. Remember Saul of Tarsus, and you studied about him in Acts 9, and he's still breathing out threatenings and slaughterings and murderings against the disciples of the Lord. They are, after all, the disciples of the Lord. And all of a sudden, the Lord appears to Saul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And here's Saul laying flat on his face, blinded by the dazzling light, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he said, Lord, what should I do? And the Lord says, go to Damascus, and it will be told to you what you must do. When we talk about Jesus being the Lord, that means he's the master. He gives the commands, we obey the commands. He gives the orders, we carry out the orders. Without hesitation, without equivocation. That's what it means for Jesus Christ to be the Lord. And of course, Saul did, and we know the rest of the story. He obeyed the Lord from that point onward, three days later when Ananias preached the gospel to him. But we have a song that we were singing. One of the things that Jesus laments, which is very striking to me, is in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I tell you to do? We sang, an, we sang a, a song previous, I should say, to the lesson, and the question was asked in the song, who will follow Jesus? Did you notice the song right across the page? I will follow Jesus. I mean really and truly. Are you one of those people who gladly receive the word like they did over there, those 3,000 in Acts chapter 2? Those who gladly received his word were baptized. You know what they were confessing? Jesus Christ is Lord. They were bowing their knees and confessing with their mouths. If you need to render obedience to the Lord, we have this invitation song here. And you'll notice by some of the thoughts that are expressed in the song, the exact same thing. If he says it, we will do it. Never fear, only trust and obey. Will you come while we stand, while we sing together?